0: Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the preachers here, and uh, it's my privilege to continue us through the book of 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 3, and we're going to be at the end of that, so I'll give you a moment to turn there. The devil loves to take down the team captains. I don't know if you guys remember that quote. That was from last week. Gene shared that as we Walk through the first part of chapter 3. And as we've seen so far in this letter, the team captains at the church in Ephesus have been taken down. They've been speculating about the truth of the Bible. They've been telling people that God hates things like marriage. And what's worse, the deacons and the congregation seem to be going right off the deep end with them. Nobody's talking about it. I look at a church like this, and I want to wipe it off the map. And the Apostle Paul planted this church. If anybody has the right to hit the nuke button, it's Paul. But Paul hasn't done that. Instead, Paul has sent one of his top guys, Timothy, to restore order in the church. And he sent this letter to Timothy, to help the church repair itself. And he's given them a lot of good advice so far. Why does Paul invest in people who give him no return? Because he loves them. It's a mystery that somebody would love their enemy. That somebody would love a person who can give them nothing comparably in return on their investment. It's, in fact, this mystery that's the foundation of what Paul is so desperate to share with this church. And today he's going to share that mystery. We're going to dig into the mystery of that foundation. That will be point one on your outline. This is the foundation for all change and all hope in the church. And then with that foundation corrected, we're going to look at one of the many changes in store for the Ephesian church. And then we're going to see what kind of changes we need to make. So we're at the end of chapter 3. Verses 14 through 16. And point number one is the church's foundation for right behavior is that Jesus is God. Paul writes this to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So Paul starts to unravel this mystery, But the first thing he does is remind them of their identity in God. He calls them, this dysfunctional church, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, these people exist by the will of God in order to glorify God. So their job as Pillars and buttresses is is to literally hold up and support the truth that is already present. They're not here to speculate as to what the truth is. Because it's been made made clear by God and his word. Now, all throughout the Bible and all throughout this church, people have failed at that. And the real mystery is God's response. That's the point of this little poem at the end of this section. I'm going to briefly explain it and move on, and Peter's going to spend all of next week unpacking each line of this poem. But I'll give you the 30,000-foot view. The mystery is that Jesus, Paul writes, is God in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, or resurrected, seen by angels, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. In other words, Paul is saying that the foundation of the church is Jesus, because Jesus is God. Or as we're just saying, Jesus is the word made flesh. And it's such a mystery that, that God would faithfully live among his enemies and then die for them. And then he would be resurrected. He would restore those enemies. He would be sending them to be his ambassadors in the world. And then they would be taken up and live with him forever. So if you've been going to church all your life, that may have seemed kind of, you know, okay, yeah, I know that. But here's the foundational shift that just happened for Ephesus because of what's being written here. Because Jesus is God, The church has a team captain that can't be taken down. Dealing with bad teaching seems a little bit more possible now, doesn't it? It makes some of these high standards we've been reading about look quite a bit different. See, all those high standards Paul wrote about in this letter, all these qualifications for elders... These are not moral goals because of this reality. These are simply descriptions of what Jesus is. Faithful. Selfless. All attributes of the living God. The source of all truth. So the truth of God doesn't need to change. The preachers need to change. And because of Jesus, they can change. That's how a broken church gets restored. That's the hope in Ephesus. And the church and the change has to follow a foundational shift. You've got to almost rebuild the house. And it has to begin in the pulpit. It has to begin in the pulpit. So the rest of this sermon is point two: three two. Three ways a preacher should behave because Jesus is God. So we're going to be covering all of chapter four here. And I'm going to essentially give you three things. And they're on your outline. I'll break up the text. First, the preacher should speak to the heart with God's word. I'll read verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God, required to be re- that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So, what's the big problem going on in the church with the preaching? These preachers are teaching people that marriage and meat are somehow in opposition to who God is. And so he doesn't just say, Well, preachers, you're okay, but here are some ways you can improve. He calls the preachers liars who have seared consciences. And he even calls people who follows these teachings devoted to demons. So if you're a really, really faithful church member at Ephesus, you're really, really devoted to demons. And ironically, I'm going to explain this verse by talking about meat. When you sear a piece of meat, what happens? Don't say it, it's delicious. That's true. But the outside gets this charred crust. Can you undo that sear? Not without divine intervention. The same is true of a person's conscience. I preach, and I can relate to this. I've gotten so numb sometimes, because life just smacks me around. I can prep a sermon and I can find good quotes and I can find a good personal story and I can write a great outline and I can get it right in around 30 minutes and I can do all of that without saying, how does this text apply to me? How about you? How many times do you read the Bible or you listen to a sermon and your first thought is, man, I hope my friend was taking notes on that. (laughs) Paul gets it. So he cuts right through all the junk and instead of talking about surface level things like meat and marriage, he goes right to the heart and he uses God's word. I don't know if you caught it, but Paul spoke plainly from the book of Genesis. God made marriage. God allowed men to eat meat. He said it was good. In other words, those things are not inherently sinful. So, what should the Ephesian preachers be preaching about? Verses 4 and 5 give us the answer. Look with me. For everything created by God is good. Everything. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Did you catch it? What the problem is? God has made things good. The real problem is when people don't receive those gifts with Thanksgiving. When God says, here, this is how I set things up. And people are like, no. That's how the sin problem began. Here, are these God's words similar? God set clear rules for Adam and Eve. Not as a jerk. He's like, this is how life works best. And then Satan did exactly what these preachers are doing. He speculated. Did God really say that? And Adam and Eve, in their sinful hearts, instead of receiving what God had offered with thanksgiving, they rejected God. Their hearts were against him. That's the problem. Let's keep standing in the word here. And after Adam and Eve sinned, who was faithful? God was. He held fast to Adam and Eve, who were his enemies. And he promised that Jesus would one day come and restore them. And he gave them meat and marriage, too. And so we have those things as gifts. Now, you're free in Christ to be a single vegetarian. You can do that. The issue is your heart. Why are you a single vegetarian? Why do you eat meat? Why are you married? That's the question that should be being asked. So Paul here, if you caught it, he's actually modeled the correct way to preach in the way he corrects these preachers. He shows them that godly preaching uses God's word and aims right at the heart by doing just that. He's showing them the clear, true character of God. That's how a preacher should behave. Look like God by saying what he said. How do we apply this? Church, please hold your preachers to this high standard. If I don't aim at the heart, And you pick up on that? Or any of the preachers here, Mr. Mark, tell us. Look for preachers who aim at the heart. And if you move away, find a church with preachers who aim for the heart. If you don't find one, make one. Let's move on to the second way that a preacher should behave. Remember that godliness is always your best pursuit. I'll continue by reading verses 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the word of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So Paul encourages them, continue in this, aim at their heart with God's word. And if a preacher does that, you might consider that his trajectory is good. He's not aiming at outward things, He's aiming right at the heart. His trajectory is on point. He's on the right track in his preaching. This next exhortation is less about a preacher's aim and more about how hard is he running. Verse 7, a preacher is to train himself for godliness. In other words, once he's locked into the right trajectory, that should consume all of his life. He should be setting the pace for the church. Godliness, or or looking more like God, should always be his highest priority. And I say that because as a preacher, there are lots of good ways to spend my time that aren't the best things. That's what Paul means in verse 7 when he says bodily training has some value. For example, if I eat right, then I don't have a heart attack and I can preach more. That's good. But if I go to the gym 10 times a week, and my family falls apart, I've done it wrong. not pursuing godliness. Again, the question, why do I go to the gym? But verses 8 and 9 say this. Godly training has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That's why we labor and strive. Paul, his priority, is always looking for ways to grow in godliness. And he speaks from experience. Think about Paul's life. Think about all the stuff that happened between the beginning of his ministry and the end of it. His body, as he writes this letter, is wasting away from years of hard work and beatings and shipwreck, and sleepless nights, and imprisonment. Why is he doing those things? To puff himself up? No, he's doing it to look more like Jesus to people. He's operating out of that right foundation. And since, like Jesus, his hope is in his bodily resurrection, the correct answer when it comes to priority management is always... What will help me grow in godliness? And not, which option is safer for me? He's okay with his body breaking if it's for Jesus. That's what Jesus looks like. All of his work. Father, your will. I'll lay down my life. I'll lay down my body. So how do we apply this? Church, again, hold your preachers to this high standard. If I or any of the other preachers here are not delighted about growing in godliness in our own walks, tell us. And look for preachers who do this. And if you move, find a church with preachers who do this. If you don't find one, make one. Let's talk about the third and final way the preacher should behave. Stand firm. That's your third point. That's your third sub-point. And this one is kind of summative. It's it's three ways a preacher is called to stand firm. And all we're doing is we're talking about watching his teaching. So that relates back to the first, step, first thing I said. Watching his life, that second thing. And then balancing those two things. So I'm going to try to open up a little more in this sub-point and share some things God has been teaching me about that balance between how's my preaching and how's my walk. I'll read verses 11 through 16. Command and teach these things, Paul writes, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, until I come devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hand on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So first, stand firm in teaching and preaching. And he mentions this in verses 11 through 13. So use those as a little bit of a gauge. Stand firm in teaching and preaching. I wish I could explain. Just how tempting it is. As a preacher. To cheat. To take great quotes. And just kind of move a few words around. And then say I said that. Or just lean heavily on commentaries. Because I'm in a hurry. And hey. That guy seems solid. You know how hard it is to write a sermon from scratch? But Paul says in verse 13, Devote yourself. You change. Don't water down God's word. In other words, preacher, be faithful to preach and faithful to seek ways to grow in preaching. Why? Jesus is faithful. He spoke the truth even when his followers turned on him and his disciples ran away. So the second way to stand firm is stand firm in your own life constantly. So less about preaching and more about my personal walk. And you can refer to verses 12 and 14 through 15 as a gauge for this. Stand firm in your own life. I can't tell you how many times I've preached boldly up here, and then when I get out there, I'm just a little quiet. You ever do that? You have the right things to say in your small group, and then you go home for the holidays, and you're just silent. I mean, here, I think, well, you all must be interested because you showed up, and most of you are smiling. My problem is, like, when I go home for Christmas, you know, I just kind of assume people aren't interested. Because they would ask, right? So I can just clam up. You know what my problem is? I'm not looking for ways to grow in godliness. How can I just look for the people who are looking for hope? I don't need to argue down that one, uncle. I don't need to bother. That's fruitless. Let me look around for people who are looking for hope. Let me look for ways to grow. Paul's verse Paul's words in verses 14 through 15 are a real encouragement if that's you. Don't neglect your gift. Practice it. Let people see your progress. Especially preachers. Instead of being passive, let me actively look for opportunities to give glory to God. And then give glory to God. Let me lead by example. That's just one example of me watching my own life and not shrinking back. And then lastly, verse 16. Stand firm by balancing, which is kind of an oxymoron when you think about it. So all this is, is giving equal care to my preaching in my own personal life. You ever been to a church where a pastor does one and not the other? A godly preacher watches both. Because if one of those areas is neglected, both are actually going to suffer. Here's why. If I preach amazing sermons, but I clock out as soon as I say amen, you probably aren't going to trust me. And a visitor definitely won't. But on the other hand, if I witness to everybody on my street, and I come in here with no sermon notes, and I barely skim the text, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer big time. A preacher fails if either of those two areas are neglected. And as a result, so does the church. Look at Ephesus. And I can speak from experience that this is hard. To do both of those things. To know when to say, okay, I'm done with the sermon. Let me focus on this other thing. But as Paul concludes, if we watch both of these things then instead of the harsh reality of verse 1 where lying preachers reinforce demonic teaching and many leave the faith, instead, here's the new ending of the story in verse 16. You, preacher, will save yourself and your hearers. How do we apply this? Church, hold your preachers to this balancing act. If you're, if we're not watching our lives and our preaching, if either one of those is getting out of whack, tell us. I just had one of the guys call me up yesterday, and offered me, "Here's some ways I'm really appreciating your preaching. Here's a couple ways you could do better. Thank you." And if you move away, find a church with preachers who do this. And if you do, you're going to help them look more like Jesus to you. And then you're going to look more like Jesus. Are we going to do this perfectly? No, we're not. This is God's standard. So we need each other. And we need Jesus' help. And Jesus knew this. He said to his disciple Peter in Matthew 16, And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church was built on guys like Peter. And how much did Peter fail? But who's actually doing the building? God is, And we'll approve. So the main point, if you haven't caught it already, is this. Because the, the church's foundation is Jesus, Jesus must be at the heart of every preacher's teaching and at the core of every preacher's life. Fight for this. Look for this. Find this. And that's hard work because this is God's standard, But by the grace found only in Jesus Christ, a preacher can lead the charge and holding up the truth for all the world to see. Let's pray together. Dear God, these are hard words. These are hard words when I consider the weight of preaching and when I consider the weight of leading the charge. And I know there's many brothers here who preach far better and run far harder than I do. And I look to them, and as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's why I look to them, because they're looking to you. But would you help us to love and refine the men here who are called to preach and who are called to lead? Would you help them? Or would you help us to help them? Amen.